This episode contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. It was a cold October morning in Wilson, Kentucky, when the mutilated body of Nancy Lowe was found on the side of the road. Although some suspects were investigated, no one has been held responsible for the death of my cousin. It is my hope that this podcast will bring us closer to finding Nancy's killer nearly 10 years later. Nancy was always a victim, and yet she refused to act like one. I first remember meeting Nancy when I was four years old. It was at the funeral for her father, my uncle. She was eight at the time. It was hard on the entire family, her mother losing a husband and my father losing a brother. It was some kind of freak accident. My parents didn't want to tell me. I remember them saying I needed to be there for Nancy, that she needed someone to cry with or to talk to. But I don't remember her needing anyone. I think I cried more than she did. She did cry. She wasn't completely cut off or anything. But I distinctly remember her coming up to my father, who was openly sobbing by the casket, and holding him tight around the waist, and told him everything was going to be okay. His brother Vern was finally arrested. She was so strong. And she needed to be. Her mother, Mavis, remarried a relatively rich man named Fraser Snow, who lived a couple of miles away in Bardstown. He provided for them financially, but not emotionally. He didn't seem to like Nancy much, and she seemed to only make him more upset when she refused to take his last name. Mavis, however, did as she was told to keep the peace. But it was hard on her, and she died of liver failure just before Nancy graduated high school. I was 14 years old when I met Nancy a second time, at the funeral for her mother. It was our turn to tell her everything was going to be okay, something she so desperately needed to hear. She also needed protection from her stepfather, who accused Nancy of being a troublemaker and a delinquent and driving her mother to drink. It was Nancy's 18th birthday when she moved in with us. My mother had made a cake for her with candles and candy letters that spelled out her name. Nancy blew out the candles counted everyone up, and began dividing the cake. It wound up not being enough pieces for everyone. Nancy had forgotten to count herself. We split my piece. If you had asked her, she would have said she moved to Wilson because it was close to the teaching school she wanted to attend, the National Eastern School of Teaching. And Wilson was happy to have her. She would read news segments on the local radio station. She assisted at the police department after Officer Avery's wife passed worked as a cashier at the Swan Shop, a local grocery store chain, and would even substitute teach at Merle Ness Middle School. Nancy would eventually move out of our house in the suburbs and into an apartment closer to her work in town. She told my parents she felt bad having them drive her into town for all of her affairs, but I knew she just wanted more privacy. She was 20 years old at this point and dating a local psychologist named Ryan Faulkner. He was a lecturer at the National Eastern School of Teaching, and the two seemed to really hit it off. I was so happy for her. The last time I saw Nancy was Friday, October 3rd, 2008. It was my 16th birthday party. I had invited some friends over to my house for a night of cake and pop and maybe a little beer. It was around 10 p.m. when Nancy finally made an appearance. She apologized profusely, saying she had been so busy recently that she had forgotten to get my gift. This was odd, because even when we were kids, she would mail me a present on my birthday, usually something small she had found in an antique store. She stayed for about 30 minutes. I was pretty upset, both because she hadn't got me a present and because her beeper kept going off. 
Every time it did, she seemed embarrassed and kept apologizing to me, but I rarely said anything to her. Finally, she started saying her goodbyes to everyone. My parents offered to drive her back into town, but she biked to my party and didn't want to leave her bike at our house. She meekly said one last happy birthday to me. I just went back in mid-conversation with my friend Robin. And then Nancy left, and she was gone. Saturday came and went. My parents kept asking for me to call and apologize to Nancy for acting like a brat the night before. I refused. I remember joking that I could just call her beeper. Fuck. Finally, on Sunday morning, my mother called Nancy's apartment herself and put the phone in my face, forcing me to apologize. All anger and spite immediately disappeared upon hearing her voice over the phone for the first time in days. It made me realize how immature I had been acting, but it also made me realize that Nancy wasn't home. I had gotten her machine. I asked my mom if she knew Nancy's pager number, but then we realized none of us knew when Nancy had actually gotten the pager, much less what the number could have been. We must have called her home nearly 20 times before finally deciding to drive to her apartment to check up on her. She had given us a key so we could drop by whenever we wanted. We opened the door, and everything was in order, untouched, calm. The crochet owl, the framed picture of Nancy and her parents, Mavis and Vern, her swan shop apron hanging on a key hook. It was as if the room was waiting for Nancy to return. And then I found something sitting on the coffee table. A small, wrapped-up present with my name written on it in Nancy's handwriting. She hadn't forgotten to buy me a gift. She had just forgotten it at home. It destroyed me. It felt so heavy in my hands, even though the present was just barely bigger than a ring box. Couldn't bring myself to open it. I think part of me felt like if I opened it without her being there, I was accepting the fact that I would never see her again. And that's when we called her in as a missing person. We had expected to talk to Officer Avery, who was good friends with Nancy, but instead got a hold of Officer Oral, who transferred us to Chief of Police Richard J. We told him Nancy had been missing since Friday, answered any and all questions they could think to ask, gave him recent photos of her, her boyfriend's name, where she worked, her family history, the description of her bike, anything, everything. He said he would organize a search party early the next morning. It was almost midnight when we arrived back home, hearing the local radio station reporting Nancy's disappearance. I held that present. Nancy had gotten me so close making sure not to tear the paper or the ribbon, fearing that it was somehow linked to Nancy like a voodoo doll. Monday morning. It was a crisp 46 degrees. At approximately 7.20 a.m., a few local boys on their way to school had taken a shortcut through the woods. They found what they had thought was an abandoned Halloween decoration or maybe some kind of macabre historical wax figure art piece. It was Nancy. She was naked, lying face down, and her arms spread out like she was making snow angels in the leaves. 
Her back had been lacerated so intensely that you could see her spine. The medical examiner would later say most of this damage had occurred after Nancy had died. Her auburn hair was matted around her neck and her head. The boys, thinking she was a mannequin, decided to turn her over. I have spoken to these boys over the years and in recent months. Zachary Oral, Ren Stevenson, Eli Avery, and Parker Cage. Some details have disappeared into time, but the one thing they will always remember are her eyes. They were unnaturally wide and milky blue. Her eyelids had been removed, cut off, ensuring, in the simplest way, there would be no open casket. That's when they screamed and called the police. Nancy's throat had been cut multiple times and her face horribly beaten. Some swelling had occurred, meaning she was beaten before she was killed. Her chest was bruised and sliced with what looked like claw marks from her clavicle to below her breasts. In her hair, they found the eggs of flies and immature maggot larvae. They estimated that she was most likely killed Friday night. The news had described the crime scene as occult or ritualistic. This wasn't just due to the state of the body, but the crime scene itself. A few yards away from the body, but closer to the road, they found broken branches, crushed bushes, and a pool of blood. Investigators suspected she had been murdered here, left to bleed out, and then moved to where she was found. Surrounding the body of Nancy Lowe were seven stones, heavy, flat, and round, like skipping stones creating a circle around her body. While attempting to collect prints from the stones, they found that under each stone was a feather, a black, bristly, long feather, and scratched on the bottom of those stones were letters. In alphabetical order, they were B, as in boy, I, L, M, as in man, N, as in Nancy, O, S, as in Sam. The most damning evidence they found at the crime scene were a pair of binoculars in a bush 10 feet from her body. They checked for prints, but found initials on the strap. P, S. It was then that they also found a no trespassing sign in the fallen leaves. Someone owned this land. The police would check the property records and found that indeed about 2,500 square feet of land where Nancy was killed was owned by a local millionaire, Paul Swan, founder and owner of the Swan Shop grocery store chain. And I want to make this clear. None of the many empty acres of surrounding wooded area was owned by Mr. Swan just the plot of land where Nancy was murdered and mutilated. The police brought the body back to be analyzed further by the medical examiner, a woman named Ava Crane. She would find small shavings of metal in the claw marks on Nancy's chest. She suspected the marks had been made by a three-pronged gardening cultivator. Miss Crane also found that the fly eggs in Nancy's hair belonged to a family of insect called Ascalaphidae, or owl flies. These flies lay eggs on the plants rather than bodies, implying that Nancy had fallen in or ran through bushes carrying these eggs. She found something else while performing the autopsy. While checking for signs of rape, Miss Crane found something inside of Nancy. She described it as pointy 
and dark and almost looked like a small animal. Miss Crane pulled a jagged, large, dark feather out of Nancy's vagina. Miss Crane, a skeptic and woman of science, has said she could only describe this act as demonic. My folks and I didn't know all these grisly details at the time. Officer Avery couldn't say much when he arrived at our home to tell us they had found Nancy. I remember him repeating the word gone over and over as he choked back tears and shivered. My father punched a wall and screamed, shaking the house. My mother shivered with Officer Avery and nearly collapsed in his arms. All I could think about was the last time I saw Nancy. How she seemed distracted, despondent, and my disinterest at that time to ask her what was wrong. How she had always been there for others, and yet I wasn't even there for her. These feelings hit me in waves, and I staggered to my bedroom, the sounds of sobbing and screaming muffled by the door. On my nightstand, safe and sound, was Nancy's gift to me. There was no use in keeping it wrapped now. I opened it up, and this is what was inside. I'm Phoebe Lowe, and with your help, I'm going to find my cousin's killer. <laughs>